You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is from Isaiah chapters 54 and 55. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called, for the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children." In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, Buy and eat. Come, 
buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Nick Clatterbuck. I'm one of the deacons here. Uh, Bob and Dusty and Justin are all down in uh, Dallas, Texas at an Acts 29 conference, and since they're gone, you get me. Um, refunds are available at the door if, if that's something you need. No, my name is Nick. Uh, it's my privilege to preach to you out of Isaiah 54 and 55 this morning. So a couple weeks back, uh, my wife and I got to go down to the Hope Center Gala Banquet down at the CenturyLink Center. Um, there's a picture just to prove that we went. Uh, it was just a fancy dinner, great food, great drink, good people to hang out with, uh, and the best part about it at least if you're me, was that it was entirely free. Coram Deo had purchased a table at the banquet and they needed butts to fill the seats, so they called us up, asked us if we'd go. We said, yeah, we love free stuff. So we got to go for free, enjoyed it. It was a great night. Uh, The interesting thing was, though, as I thought about it, that that even though this was a free dinner for us, a, a free banquet, there were still things that we needed to do in order to take full advantage of the blessing. It was free, but it was still contingent. There were instructions we needed to follow. Uh, For example, first of all, we just needed to accept the invitation. 
We need to say yes, we'll go. Uh, second, the invitation said we need to, to wear something called cocktail attire. Uh, to this day, I still don't know what cocktail attire is, but my wife had to help me figure out what it was and get it on me so I wouldn't horribly embarrass her. And luckily, we found that. Um, we had to get ourselves all the way from West Omaha down to the CenturyLink Center. We have four small kids, so this was no small feat. And we had to do it all by 645. Uh, By some grace of God, uh, we managed to get there. And you can take the picture down so you stop looking at my smiling face. (laughs) So the, the point being that this blessing, this banquet was free for us, but it was still contingent. There were still things that we needed to do to take full advantage of what was put in front of us. What we have this morning in Isaiah 54 and 55, is another banquet. Another banquet that is free, but still contingent. It is entirely free for those who are coming, and yet there are certain instructions, certain things that those people need to do to take full advantage of what's in front of them. The only difference is that this is no small fundraiser banquet. This is the full feast of God's blessings, won for us by Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Nobody can buy their way in. Nobody can earn this blessing from God. And yet, Isaiah wants to show us that there's certain things that we must do to take advantage of these blessings that Christ has won for us. That's what he is desperate to show us in these chapters. And and listen, it's absolutely critical that we hear this. Isaiah's message is that nothing less than our eternal joy is at stake in whether or not we hear and respond to this appropriately. He sees a danger for us in looking at the invitation, seeing that the feast is free, getting so excited about what God has provided, and yet we stay on the couch. We never come to the feast. We never respond. Isaiah is begging with us, pleading with us, not to let that be us. Isaiah wants to show us how to feast well at the banquet of God's blessing. And there's two things that he is going to walk us through in these chapters, two things that we're going to talk about to get there. The first thing he's going to do is that Isaiah is going to describe the feast that God has prepared. And second, he's going to give us instructions on how to feast well. So first, the feast that God has prepared. In order to understand this feast or or how it came to be, we have to step back just a little bit and look at where this feast comes from. And it comes from the work done by the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, that we looked at last week in Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, Look with me at Isaiah 53, verse 5. Here, Here we're talking about Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. And there Isaiah says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. This is Jesus Christ taking our sin upon himself, suffering the wrath of God for that sin in order to clean us up, to bring us back to God, to give us a chance to actually be with God the Father. But his work isn't done there. Look at verse 12. It says, Because he, Jesus, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this idea of Jesus making intercession for transgressors is actually Jesus standing up between us and God the Father and saying, listen, Father, I know these people are dirty and broken and sinful and they don't deserve anything but your wrath. But I want you to give them the blessings you've prepared for me. 
I want you to let them into your great banquet of blessing that you've prepared because of my obedience and my suffering. This is Jesus buying the food, laying out the table, and paying for our ticket to get into the feast. His work is the basis upon which we can talk about any of this. His work is the basis for the feast. And what's interesting is that Isaiah now, right after that, as we get into our passage, chapter 54, he just starts teasing out the implications of Christ's work. He says, man, if Jesus has done this work, if he's purchased this from the Father, if he has interceded for us and asked for us to come in, look at all the amazing things that are available to God's people. He just starts laying out a banquet of blessing. And we have our nose pressed up on the glass, looking in, watching everything be laid out, and our mouths just start to water. Isaiah is just laying out a tantalizing banquet of God's blessing. Now, chapter 54, that's what this is all about. And there's a lot here to see, but I think there's three things in particular that Isaiah wants us to look at, three particular blessings from God. The first is a renewed purpose, the second is a restored relationship, and the third is an eternal security. So first, a renewed purpose. Look at 54 verse 1. There it says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So what's he talking about here? Who is this desolate one? It's Israel. You see, from its very beginning, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be the people through whom the whole world would be blessed. This is God's foundational promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah is meant to be an extremely spiritually fruitful people. They're supposed to be an amazing force for good. And yet, as they receive this word from Isaiah, they find themselves conquered, deported, whittled down in number. Their influence has been completely subsumed in this great nation of Babylon. They have failed of their essential purpose. They are the barren one. They are not spiritually fruitful. And yet, it's into that situation that God gives them this promise. He says, sing, O barren one. Yes, you are barren. Yes, you have failed. But sing aloud, I'm going to write a different story. In fact, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Basically, make a bunch of room. You're going to be spiritually fruitful again. And it's all going to be because of the work of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. It's through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's through him all the people will come into that promise given to Abraham. Israel, through Christ, I'm going to write a different story in your life. I'm going to give you a renewed purpose. So how about you? Have you failed? Have you not lived up to what God calls you to be? Have you spent years or even decades of your life exiled from God? Enslaved to someone or something that has kept you from being spiritually fruitful? You need to hear that one of the blessings God holds out to you is a new start, a new life in Jesus Christ. Through the forgiveness we have in Christ, through his empowering spirit, God wants to make us fruitful once again. He wants to give us a new start. He wants to give us a, new, a renewed purpose. 
That's the first blessing laid out on the table for us in chapter 54. The second blessing that God has for us in chapter 54 is a restored relationship. Look at verse 5 of chapter 54. There it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is God stepping up and saying, no more is there going to be this tenuous relationship between us. No longer are you going to question whether or not you've screwed up so bad that I can no longer love you. No longer are you going to wonder whether my anger will last against you forever. No, the image of God as husband here denotes a deliberately formed relationship that will last for eternity. This is God vowing to the people, I promise to love you for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in sin and in righteousness, till death do us part, and even longer. Look at verse 10, it says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord. If you're a guy that's about to propose to a girl, or maybe you're engaged, this is some good wedding vow material. This is God saying, yeah, the whole world may crumble and fall apart, and yet my love for you will remain. This is a secure relationship of love that you can count on forever. Have you had relationships in your life that fall so far short of this standard? Parents, siblings, spouses, Boyfriends, girlfriends who have neglected you, abused you, left you in your time of need? Do you feel that if you don't hold up your end of the bargain that the people in your life are going to run out on you? Or maybe you wonder if you don't hold up your end of the bargain that God is going to run out on you. Listen, God is offering his people something entirely different. He's promising to love them faithfully forever, not based on anything that they have done, but on his vow and his promise. God offers his people a restored, permanent, intimate relationship. It's the second blessing that's for us in chapter 54. And finally, the last blessing that Isaiah wants us to see laid out on the table in front of us is an eternal security. Look at verse 11. It says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. I don't know how fired up you get about agate and carbuncles, but what God is trying to show us here is that he wants to provide a place of physical security. He's talking to a people who have been overrun, who have had their homes destroyed, who have been shipped off to another nation. He says, that's not the life that I have planned for you. Your eternity is going to be one of security, physical security. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 14, he says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. We all know, right, how terrible it is to just be consumed by fear, terror, anxiety. 
living afraid of something is almost worse than the thing happening itself. It's just unsettling. It stinks. And, and God is saying that this is not the heritage I have for my people either. Not only am I going to give you a physical security, I'm going to give you a mental security. Yeah, your, your situation may not fully change right away, but I'm going to protect you from fear itself. I'm going to give you something so strong that you actually don't have to live in fear. But he doesn't even stop there. Verse 17, he says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that arises against you in judgment. So not only is there physical security, not only is there mental security, there's spiritual security. I mean, are, are you sick and tired of Satan, the accuser, telling you of all the things that you've done wrong? All the ways that you've failed God, all the ways that you don't measure up. God says, no, you are going to be free from that accusation. Even though Satan may be chattering in your ear, you do not have to suffer that. I will protect you. I will stand up and tell him to be quiet. God offers his people an eternal security, physical security, mental security, spiritual security. This is the whole thrust of chapter 54, that God has prepared for his people an incomparable feast of blessing. All this stuff is just laid out for them for the taking. Can we just stop and agree that this sounds like a really good life? I mean, this is the stuff that we want. This is the stuff that we exert ourselves to get. Relational security, physical security, peace of mind. God says, that's what I have for my people in abundance, all because of the work of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. So we've got this all laid out in front of our eyes. We've got this amazing feast before us. But what are we supposed to do with it? Are we just supposed to look at it? admire it, supposed to take pictures of it and put it on Instagram. Even if we want to eat it, how do we go about it? Do we wait and have somebody bring it to us? Do we dive in ourselves? These are the questions that Isaiah wants to help us with. He's desperate to help us with. He wants to give us some instructions on how to feast well, on how to roll up our sleeves, grab, dig in, and enjoy everything that is for us in this feast. And that's what he has for us in chapter 55. He shows us how to feast well at the banquet of God's blessing. So listen with me to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 55. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So, so there you have it. You've received in the mail the invitation to God's banquet. And just like the invitation to the Hope Center banquet came with instructions, things that we had to do, same thing with God's invitation here. There are certain things in here, certain commands that Isaiah wants to follow to make sure that we take full advantage, that we enjoy to the full this banquet of blessing. There's three things in particular that we're going to look at here. Three things that Isaiah tells us we must do. First, we must come. Second, we must buy. And third, we must eat. So let's talk about those things. First, in order to feast well at the banquet of God's blessing, we must actually come to the feast. I mean, simplest point imaginable, right? Something that we might actually want to assume away. I mean, of course, you have to come to a feast in order to enjoy it. 
But we could assume it away if Isaiah didn't do the exact opposite. In fact, he drills this point maybe harder than any other. He sees this as the vital thing that we need to see and do in order to enjoy God's feast. Just look at verse 1. See how many times the word come comes up in this one verse alone. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So that's, that's four instances of the command to come in one verse. Isaiah here is not just opening the doors to the feast and saying, hey guys, uh, there's some food in here, I think it's pretty good, you know, come if you want to, but if not, no big deal. No, he's doing the exact opposite, right? He's begging with people, he's pleading with people, he's imposing on people, he's saying, come, come to this feast, you, get in here, you, you have to come in and get this. He's fired up, he is urgent. That urgency speaks to how amazing this feast is, how wonderful and delightful it is to us. But it also carries with it an implicit warning that I think we need to hear. Look at verse 3. It says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. I mean, this is good. There is life here. There is flourishing. But, But look at the negative side of this verse. Just flip it on its head for a second. Man, if you do not incline your ear, if you do not come to me, if you do not hear, your soul may die. There's real consequences for not coming to this banquet. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is great news. God is available to us. He's ready to bless us. But flip this on its head. There's a warning. He may not always be so near. There will be a time when this invitation is closed, when God is not readily accessible. Isaiah is desperate here. He is worried that we are going to miss out on this feast if we do not respond to the command to come. There are real, soul-level, eternal consequences for not coming. But here's the good news. As long as you hear this this morning, as long as you get to read these words, as long as this good news is preached, God is saying, the doors are still wide open. The invitation is still for you. There is still time. Will you come? Come to me. I have such wonderful things for you. So will we come? Have you ever said, yes, Lord? I accept this invitation. I am getting up and I am coming to get what you have provided for me. That's the baseline thing we all need to do before we can experience the good things that God has for us, the feast that he's prepared. We have to come. Now, before we can go much further, we we have to stop for a second to pull back and deal with an objection, an objection that may be rising up for many of you. And, And that's this. Hey, I thought that God was the one who accomplished salvation, not my good works. I thought God was the one who blesses us and makes us clean, not what I do. And that is true and good. Nobody is arguing against that. We fully believe that God is the one who saves us. He is the one who regenerates our hearts. He is the one who cleanses us and brings us to him. But listen, the danger for us, the danger Isaiah is warning us against, is using that good theology to get ourselves off the hook for obeying the plain commands of Scripture. For saying, God does all the work, therefore I have nothing to do. God does all the work, so all these plain commands of Scripture, I don't need to obey them. God will just find a way to take care of it. We need to have a different type of heart in obeying God's commands. 
It's one that's illustrated really well in a story from John 5. Uh, I want to share it with you. It's uh, the image of Jesus, or the story of Jesus, meeting a man who's been crippled his whole life. The man's by the pool of Bethesda. He wants to get healed. Him and Jesus are having this conversation. And uh, here's here's where it picks up in, in John 5, verse 8. So they're talking, and Jesus says to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once his crippled man is healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So Jesus has completely healed him. But it gets better. It says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Hey, listen, guy. I know you just got healed, but our theology, our view of God says that God doesn't actually want you to do this. The man's response is just priceless. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. It's just like this simple duh that he has to say to the religious leaders. I mean, I don't know how all this theology stuff works, all the Sabbath stuff. Plain fact of the matter is, that guy, Jesus Christ, healed me completely. He told me to do this, so I'm just going to do it. That's the only answer I got. I really don't have any theological explanation. Listen, we don't want to discourage deep theological thinking and right thinking. But we need to have the heart of this poor, crippled man who is healed. We need to have the sense about us that Jesus has completely healed us and made us well. Now we just want to obey what he has to say. That's the heart that God desires for us. That's what Isaiah says we need to have if we are really going to experience and enjoy God's blessing. So that's the first thing that we need to do in order to enjoy God's blessing. We need to come to the feast. So second, in order to feast well at the banquet of God's blessing, we must buy. But we must buy with a particular type of currency and in a particular type of way. Verse 1 says, Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. So so what does this mean, to buy without money and without price? The first part, without money, is pretty easy, right? And it's something we get very excited about. It speaks of God's free grace. Anyone can come. You don't need to have any certain amount of money. You don't have a certain amount of stuff. You don't have to have a certain amount of righteousness. This is free. This is my free gift to you. And that's good, and that is good news. But it's the second part, this buying without price, that I think we have a little bit more trouble with, especially as it comes to ourselves. Here's what I mean. We are profoundly uncomfortable when we are given free things. So, true story. A couple months back, Dunkin' Donuts had their free coffee day. I love coffee. I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And as I said at the start, I generally love free stuff. So I was fired up about this. I was like, I'll take Sam to school today. I'll drop him off. I'll go to the Dunkin' Donuts by his school. Very excited. So drive over to Dunkin' Donuts. Going to get my free coffee. Walk in the door. I'm going to get a big, tall, free coffee. This is going to be great. But then as I'm getting up to the counter, I start thinking, wait a minute. Do you really want to be that guy who waltzes into a legitimate business, orders the biggest, tallest coffee they have, and just walks out the door? I mean, these people probably want me to buy something. So, sure enough, I buy a donut to go with my big free coffee. I've already eaten breakfast. The last thing in the world I need is another donut, but I decide to buy the donut. And we've all had this experience, right? It's just weird behavior, but it speaks to the fact that hardwired into us is this desire to pay a little bit or to do a little bit to show that we somehow earn a bit of God's blessing. We do this with our religious striving. 
That religious striving is what we do when we take the good things that we do and we bring them to God and say, God, I know this doesn't buy my salvation, but, but doesn't this merit me a little of your blessing? Now look at the things I have done. Doesn't that merit me a little bit of this food at the feast? Isaiah says that this is the wrong way to buy. Verse 2 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Using your good deeds to try to earn God's blessing even just a little bit is the wrong way to buy because it does not get us the soul-satisfying food that we crave. In fact, it leaves us more empty than when we started. Here's how it works for me. I am constantly tempted to try to buy God's blessings with my service to the church. So, hey God, I, I preach occasionally, I'm up on Sunday mornings in front of the congregation a lot. I'm a gospel community leader. Uh, I'm a deacon at church. Doesn't that buy me a little bit of your blessing? Isn't there something special that you can give me because of that? Constantly tempted that way. And when I give into that temptation, when I start living that way, two things inevitably happen, usually one right after the other. Now, the first is I start getting proud about my service. Uh, my life becomes about me and what I am doing for God. So, sorry, Sarah, I can't help with the kids. Sorry, I can't take out the trash or do the dishes. i got to work on my service to God. That's really what's important to me. But pretty soon after that, it's met with not pride, but fear. I mean, if the ways that I am getting a little bit of extra of God's blessing or if I'm earning something before God is my service, I better not slow down. I better not stop. I better not screw up. I better keep going. And pretty soon that becomes anxiety-filled, fearful. I just do and do and do, trying to earn something from God. It leaves me burnt out, worn out. And God's saying, yeah, go figure, Nick. This is my simple wisdom. This is verse 2 in action. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hey, your service is good, but it's not meant to be money. It's not meant to buy my blessing. Stop trying to do that. We all do it. The question is just how is that dynamic at play for you? What little thing are you taking and trying to give to God in order to earn some of his blessing? How is it coming up empty for you? God says inevitably it will. It does not satisfy. And here's the deal. He tells us to buy. We have to buy. But he says, put down your own good deeds. Don't buy with that. I won't get you anything. Instead, bring me the blood of Jesus Christ. Bring me the blood of Jesus spilled on your behalf. Give that to me in prayer and just watch me pour out blessing upon you. That's how you buy at my feast. A price has been paid, but it's not your price to give. It is Jesus's. That's what it means to come and buy at the feast that God has prepared for us. So finally... The last thing that we need to do is that in order to feast well at the, king, at the table of God's blessing, we must eat. But more than that, we must gorge ourselves on the good things that God has provided. Because at Coram Deo, we like to rail against the sin of consumerism. Uh, the idea that if we just take in and consume and never give out, that that is not what God wants for us. Except here. God is actually giving us license. In fact, he's commanding that we consume. He says, come and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. 
Dig in, pig out, I command it. All through chapter 55, all God is doing is playing on our pleasure instincts. He's trying to draw us in through delight, just showing that, man, what I have here is so amazing. It's better than you can ever imagine. Don't think sack lunch. Think Thanksgiving dinner. One with way too much dessert, way too much pie. You're going to gorge yourself on it. I mean, God wants to give us more than just what we need. He wants to give us amazing blessings that are just going to make us happy. That's the type of God he is. I mean, he doesn't call us just to come to the waters that are going to help us survive. He doesn't just call us to come and buy the milk that's going to nourish us. He says, come and buy good wine. There's no purpose for that other than to just make glad the hearts of men. We have a prodigal God who wants to give abundantly to his people. It's all about our delight. But still, the question remains, right? Like, what does it really mean to eat then? What does it mean to eat of these blessings? From the text, we learn that to eat of God's blessings really means to hear them in God's word. Verse 2 again says, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, listening equated with eating. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. The image is of us going to God with an open ear and taking in what he has to say, us consuming his blessing. And it's no surprise, the Bible always talks about the word of God as food. The word of God, the Bible says, is like sweet honeycomb. It's nourishing milk, it's hearty meat. It's what Jesus says when he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're supposed to feast on God's blessings through his word. After all, that's how we get to know and enjoy God's blessings. They come to us through his word. This book is nothing more than one long story of God's promised blessing to his people. It's about God creating people, redeeming people, coming after them, bringing them back to himself, giving them abundant promises, promising them a secure future. The only way we get into those blessings, enjoy them, make them a part of us, is consuming this word. It's why we read. It's why we meditate on Scripture. It's why we speak the word to one another in our gospel communities. It's why we sing it aloud at church. Just like food, we're trying to take it in. We're trying to weave it into the very core of our being. And when we do that, we are actually satisfied. Our soul hunger is satisfied. We are filled up with the trust and knowledge of all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to eat at God's banquet table. But just as there are instructions for coming, there's instructions for buying, Isaiah has instructions for eating. Remember, he's just trying to show us how we can take full advantage of these blessings given to us. He wants to show us how to do it properly so that we might enjoy it the most. And in this regard, when it comes to eating, he's got one main instruction. It's in verse 7. There he says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Simply put, there is no outside food and beverage at the banquet of God's blessing. He says, if you want to taste and see the wonderful things I have for you, you can't do it with the mouth of your own food. You need to leave all that stuff at the door. You can't bring it in here. You'll never see how good I truly am. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, guys, what I have is so far better than whatever you would sneak into this feast, it's incomparable. You cannot understand it. Stop trying to sneak in your own food. Stop trying to sneak in your own thoughts and your ways. You're missing out. Do we approach the word of God in this manner at all? When we come to God and his word, are we willing to set aside and leave at the door all our puny, wicked thoughts about who we are, about what's going to make us happy, about how the world should work, about who God needs to be for us to worship him? Will we set that aside and instead say, God, what do you have to say? Man, I trust that whatever you have is better than my own messed up small thoughts. Give me what you have. Isaiah says, to the extent that we are not coming with that attitude, we're missing out. We'll just never actually be able to taste and see the wonder that is found for us in God's word. Let me submit to you that if the word of God is dry, if it is boring, if it's tedious, the problem is not with the word of God. God promises that this is nourishing, this is great. The problem is with our approach to it. But this door is still open to us. This food is still ready for us. We can put aside our own thoughts, our own ways, and come to God and receive. It's what it means to eat well at the banquet of God's blessing. So there you have it. That's it. That is the invitation that God gives us to come to this wonderful banquet of his. To actually get out of our seats and come and receive what he has to not buy food with our own good efforts, but to buy them with the blood of Jesus Christ freely spilled for us. And not only that, to leave our own ways and means at the door and receive fully what God has. The only question for us is, will we come? Will we buy? Will we eat in this way? As you consider the invitation, one last thing I want you to see, I want you to know. Just see in this how desperate God is to give good things to his people. At the end of the day, this is all about your delight. Isaiah is heartsick that some of us may miss out on all this wonderful, good feast. And God is too. He throws his banquet for the glory of his son and for the good of his people. Will you come and receive it? And listen, there's even more good news if you don't know that the food is good, if you're not fully convinced. God does not demand that. God says, come, taste and see that I am good. I mean, think about the original audience here, the people of Israel. They're getting this promise of a suffering servant, and he's 700 years off in the future. All God is saying to the people of Israel is, hey, look at all the good things I've done for you in the past. Look at these amazing promises I'm giving you. And then just come, trust me, taste and see that I am good. That's all he's telling us to do as well. Look at the ways I've been good to my people. Look at me sending my son, Jesus Christ, to suffer your punishment for you, to bring you into my full blessing, to bring you into my family. Now come. Come to me. Taste and see that I am good. Watch as I give you blessing after blessing, heap this up upon you day after day, night after night. Trust me. Come, follow me. So, Coramdeo, will we come to God? Will we come and eat in the right way? Isaiah is desperate that we would. 
Let me pray for us that we'd respond in the right way. Heavenly Father, you are amazingly good. We just look at all the things you promised to be for us in chapter 54, um, just the ways that you come and, and you marry your people. You dedicate yourself to them. You love them. You provide them in eternal security. Uh, you have promised so much good to us. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to make this possible, for him buying all of the feast by buying our way into it. Lord, I just praise you for the ways that Isaiah's desire for us come off the page, his urgency. Father, I pray that we would feel a joyful urgency in ourselves to take advantage of this. Not in a way that just simply comes out of being scared or out of duty, but would we be drawn by our delight? Would we come and get the good things that you've prepared for us? I pray that our church would be known for feasting. It would be known for just consuming the word of God and all that you are for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to feast well, Lord. Thank you for this word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.